be in Exodus chapter 14 tonight. Let's pray. Father, bless I pray the words that we've read, the King of Glory Psalm, Psalm 24, remind us of our duty and how we are privileged to worship you, to close out the Lord's Day here this evening in your house. For these that have been mentioned tonight, we continue to praise you for answered prayer on behalf of Mike and Dixon and so many others, and we lift them up to you. We thank you for the good news on uh, David Ring's mother. Continue to abide and be with her. Uh, this, uh, these uh, two little girls that were born here this past week, bless them and their families. Uh, the lady that, uh, Ms. Hayes, that, she, that is awaiting open heart surgery tomorrow, be with her, the bypass surgery, uh, and others, Lord Jesus. We ask that you intervene according to uh, your purposes and will. That's part of uh, our opportunity to worship, not only to pray for ourselves, the well-being of ourselves, but also the well-being of others. And then guide us this evening as we continue to look at this uh, tremendous book that is uh, filled with history, but also is filled with illustrations on how we are to allow the Spirit of God to guide and direct us, even when odds seem to be overwhelming. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are now to the point in um, the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. This is considered the, the uh, greatest Old Testament miracle, okay? As you go through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea is mentioned time and time again. Now, there are other great miracles, obviously, in the Old Testament, but this one in particular... Uh, spared the lives of well over a million people and took the lives of thousands of Egyptians. So it is a, uh, uh, a benchmark moment, if you please, uh, in time, a slice of time, uh, in the uh, beginning of the exodus of the Hebrew people. I want to read the uh, chapter in its entirety, and then we'll start to digest what uh, Moses is writing here. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before uh, Pi-Hieroth between Migdal and the sea opposite baal Sephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. Now these are places that no longer exist. So there's some maps that I hope to show you and then we'll start to look at some differences here, Okay. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land, the wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants were turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So that's still in their minds, okay? They, they've been slaves for 400 years or so or around that uh, time, and, and <laughs> we need them. So he made ready his chariots and took his people with him, and also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, 
his horsemen and his army and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihiroth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then said they to Moses, because there was no graves in uh, Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we would die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall see again no more forever. And the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry land through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. <coughs> so I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his armies, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Remember now, one of the components to worship is honor. So the Lord is preparing the Hebrew people to honor him for what he's about to do. And the angel of the Lord, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. And so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud in the darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued, went after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. In other words, he confused them. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. And so the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Tremendous, tremendous illustration of the salvation of God for um, at least at this time a million, maybe as many as two million people. 
But there's also judgment here. Not just salvation, but judgment as well. So in these first four verses, as we look at this passage, uh, the Lord begins instructing Moses. He said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to pursue you. I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army. So in this act of, uh, of sparing the Israeli people, he also honors himself in the judgment and the death of the Egyptians. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's an interesting statement given what had, had preceded all of this. So as you read this, apparently the Lord set an ambush for Pharaoh. And that's okay. Uh, despite the horror of the firstborn's death, the change in Pharaoh's heart was only temporary. Uh, and he quickly moved to strike Israel. In fact, it says in these verses, he says, we, we need to go after them because they're our servants. We've got a lot of things we need to accomplish. This is the plan. We need them back. And so these things take place. Uh, and Pharaoh, he said uh, in verse 3, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. So there are two, maybe even three places this could have occurred. And I'll show you this in just a moment. And um, he, uh, Moses led the Hebrew children. If you remember in chapter 13, they didn't go by the way of the kings, what's called the way of the uh, Philistines, which was uh, adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea and up to uh, Gath. Uh, they didn't head that way. They took almost a directly southern route. And, and Moses would have been familiar with this because he he had dwelt in this land or in Midian, which is just across from the Sinai Peninsula. Verses 5 through 9, which we've covered here, uh, Pharaoh, of course, takes off after Israel. Um, and they then ask themselves a question, <laughs> why, do we, why do we have to do this? We've let Israel go, and we really should have kept them, I guess, in, uh, in Egypt. But... The problem, the, what exists here is a confusion, and it talks about that in the, latter, in the middle part of chapter 14. Pharaoh assumes that the Israelis are confused, but the scripture speaks to the fact that it's Pharaoh and his army that are confused, which is, uh, which is remarkable given all of the, the, uh, the staff, the, the generals. It talks about chariots and, and captains, and we'll address that uh, in a moment. But Pharaoh apparently had forgotten, and this is very, very similar to almost all unsaved sinners. They forget the, the righteous judgment of God that was meant to bring them to repentance. Now, Pharaoh doesn't repent, obviously. He hardens his heart. But there were ten good reasons. There were ten strong and powerful plagues that the Lord used to accumulate so that Pharaoh would let his people go. Now this apparently, again, Pharaoh's confused about what all has taken place. His firstborn is, is uh, dead as well as, as many throughout the land of Egypt as well as the livestock. 
So there's, a, there's this catastrophe that took place uh, in the nation of Israel during that time. Uh, and Pharaoh could have been thinking, although he thought incorrectly, that the plagues were the limit of God's power. I have them pressed up against the sea now, and they are mine. Um, and so his thought is he could strike Israel. Next slide, if you would, Brother Tim. So there's an application here to our, to our spiritual life. Uh, there are times, and we're talking specifically here of believers, there are times when we think that in our temptation or in our sin, that if we succumb to that, that Satan will let us go easily. In other words, he's not going to, if we, if we give in at this particular point, that is not going to bother us later on. Or that one we, once we have submitted to the temptation, that, that Satan forgets about us. But that's, that's inconsistent with Scripture. That's never the case. And sin always snowballs, not only in unbelievers' lives, but in believers' lives, too, if it goes unconfessed. And so, just as Satan pursued Pharaoh to try to exterminate the Hebrew people, we have to be careful because Satan continues to pursue even believers. Now, he can't possess us, but certainly he can tempt us. And he wants to keep us in the sway of our sin, particularly a, any pet sin that we may have that we are reluctant to confess or repent of. And ultimately from that, he will use it to destroy us. So that's what he did in the life of Pharaoh. It, it, we'll see it time and time again throughout the latter part of the, the book of Exodus as well. So the scriptures here say that he made ready his chariot. And uh, this, is, uh, this is an interesting thing. And he took his people with him. He had 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over, one, uh, over one of, uh, every one of them. So this doesn't mean there were only 600 chariots because the, the following statement is and all the chariots of Egypt. So the Egyptian army, especially at this time, was probably at least one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, army on the face of the earth. Now here's something that is interesting that in, in, the, in the research here. It says all the chariots of Egypt. Now chariots did not originate in Egypt. There was a, um, this morning we talked about people that, that came from Assyria and the, in the regions of the lands that had been conquered by the Assyrian king and that they immigrated into Samaria and they uh, built their homes there. There was intermarriage between Israeli people and, and uh, these immigrated people, these pagan peoples from other uh, lands. So is there's a similar thing that took place. Now, now, what we read this morning occurred around 700 B.C. What we're looking at now is around 1400 B.C. So there's a span here of about 700 years. <clears throat> but interestingly, if you, if you go back and you look at some of the research, there were, was a group of people called the Hyksos people that came out of Canaan. And they immigrated to Egypt uh, between 1650 and 1500 B.C. And so these people, and this was, again, a, uh, a, con a conglomeration, if you please, of Philistine people, 
of Canaanite people, of Amorite people, of Hittite people that moved into Egypt. So they were not uh, pure-blooded Egyptians, but they brought with them a great deal of technology. And one of the, uh, one of the uh, technologies that they brought was the chariot. And so in about 100, maybe 200 years, the pharaohs had learned that uh, chariots were extremely fast and mobile. And so even though they were developed and introduced by the, uh, the Hyksos people or the rulers of Egypt, it is thought that one or two of the pharaohs were not pure-blood uh, pure uh, Egyptians, but also were... Uh, were immigrants that had come from uh, Canaan. Not only that, but several years later, probably a thousand or more years uh, after this, Alexander the Great, uh, who was Greek, who was Macedon, from Macedonia, was uh, crowned the Pharaoh. So it was not unusual for the Egyptian people to assimilate other cultures into their culture and from that, they, they gleaned a lot of the technology. So the chariots were developed in Canaan. And the Hyksos people, uh, again, a conglomeration of people, they came into Egypt, had this technology, and the pharaohs were smart enough to, uh, to adopt it. They settled in the Nile Delta, which is in and about where the land of Goshen is. So they would have known the Hebrew people. Uh, they were there for some period of time. Uh, some of them remained. Some of them went back to the land of Canaan. So, and Israel certainly may have been part of these people when Jacob and his group came in to, came to meet Joseph. Uh, and they then would assimilate many Egyptian customs. That's what we see here when the Hebrew people start complaining. Why didn't we just stay where we were comfortable? Does that ever occur to you? Why don't we just stay where we're comfortable? You know, we're slaves, but, you know, maybe we didn't have it so bad. At least, at least we won't die in the wilderness. So Moses is obviously the prophet of God. I think it's interesting here. <laughs> uh, verse 13, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Moses was certainly a very meek and patient individual. Now, eventually, that patience wears thin with the, with the people. So uh, the Hyksos people brought Canaanite customs into Egypt, and they themselves, of course, uh, assimilated many of those customs along with the Hebrew people. They introduced the horse to Egypt. Heretofore, the Egyptians used camels. Now, camels are great for crossing a desert, but they're not nearly as mobile or as fast as horses. So they brought horses with them and also the uh, technology of uh, the chariot. They also developed the sickle sword, which is a curved sword that was much stronger than a straight sword, and the composite bow. So the Egyptians used and adopted all these technologies. In fact, they would have used them as they pursued uh, the Hebrew people here, but they weren't unique to the Egyptians. Next slide. So we're told here that the Lord hardened the heart, again, of Pharaoh. Um, and because of that, he takes off in pursuit of the children of Israel. 
we're not sure how many how many uh, men are in his army along with the chariots. Generally, a chariot would carry, some of them could carry up to four individuals. Uh, some of them were single. So if you just do some arithmetic on the 600, that's about 2,400 or so. And then you start saying all the chariots and then the foot soldiers as well. So it was well into the thousands that pursued uh, the Hebrew people. Um, and the Bible does say here in verse 8 that the children of Israel went out with boldness. They went out with boldness until they know that Pharaoh is pursuing them. So uh, this boldness also can be used for rebellion. 1 Kings 11, we won't turn there this evening, but it's another of those passages that deal with Jeroboam, the one that caused Israel to sin. And the word that is used there is that Jeroboam was a bold person. It can likewise be translated, he was a rebel. And we, after we read this morning what took place in Samaria, those that followed Jeroboam, and they were many, also became uh, rebels as well. So when the Hebrews were rebellious against Pharaoh, that was a good thing. But we start to see here in chapter 14 that the roots of that rebellion lies somewhat dormant in the life of the Hebrew people. And that's going to increase as the law is given to Moses, as instruction is given to Moses about the tabernacle and all of the, all of the material and victuals that go into the building of the tabernacle. And then there becomes groups of people that rebel against Moses. So the trouble with most rebels is that they rebel against the wrong things. Uh, the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi uh, Hiroth before Baal Zephon. Now, I think the next couple are, are maps. Go down. Yeah, okay. Can, I don't know if you can see this. I hope you can see this. This is, this is very confusing. A lot of lines and whatnot here, but. We'll do our best to try to explain this, and I'll, we'll probably stop with this one. There are two more, and we'll go into detail next Sunday night about this. Um, over the years, there's been quite a bit of archaeological um, digs and study that has been done trying to locate the precise place that the Hebrew people crossed the Red Sea. Now, the, uh, this is the, uh, the Gulf of Suez. This is the Gulf of Agaba. This is the Red Sea. It has always been, and on many maps it's just referred to as uh, the Red Sea. So there are a lot of lines on this thing, and I'm going to do my best here to try to explain what's taking place. And when we go to the next couple of slides, it'll... Uh, I hope will become to become more clear. So here's the land of Goshen. Okay, we we read in chapter 13 they camp for a bit in Succoth, and then they start uh, a journey in. Um, they could have gone a number of different directions. Let's put it that way. But the Bible says that they didn't take the northern route. You will see that there are two two uh, 
basically roads or two uh, trails of commerce, two roads of commerce that went adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea up into the land of Canaan. They didn't go that way. The Bible's very clear. And they didn't go that way because obviously since these were trails of commerce, then uh, the Egyptians would have had outposts along these trails and you certainly didn't want to leave Egypt just to run into an outpost of more Egyptians. So they would not have followed a northern route even though that is the shortest route, as you see, into Canaan. Remember now, the Hebrew people don't have any weapons or any weapons that are um, comparable to what the Egyptians had. So you have to keep that in mind as you're looking at the, the people tra uh, traversing. This is the Sinai Peninsula. This is Midian. This is where... Moses spent 40 years of his life. This is where Moses met Jethro and obviously married Jethro's uh, uh, daughter Zipporah. So this is the area that he had spent a great deal of time in. There are a series of mountain ranges on the southern and southwestern edge of the Sinai Peninsula as well as on the eastern rim of uh, Midian. So the mountains do a couple of things. Number one, they shield whoever is traveling from the desert winds on the inside of the Sinai Peninsula. And obviously, the Lord would not lead his people into a desert without provision. So it's highly unlikely, and there are some lines here that kind of point to where they would uh, that they went across the desert, the wilderness of Paran, and then crossed the Red Sea here, and then down into Midian. But it's highly unlikely that the Lord would have done that because of the um, desert, because of uh, there were women and children, obviously, that were involved. So the trail that they took out of Egypt was most probably one that went southeast. And that would have been this particular area here. Now they could have cut, there was a pass through here through the mountains, they could have cut into this area and then made their way up through here and across uh, the Red Sea, but that was, uh, again, a very long, long route. Because the mountains were there, they provided some protection from the, um, from the desert. They also would help to maintain some of the uh, cloud cover off of the Red Sea in this region. So the thought is that when we talk about the, the, the three places that are mentioned there in, uh, in uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, verse 2 rather, Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Savon that, that is, those are names of places which no longer exist but through archaeology have been determined to be in this region itself. So I'm going to stop there this evening simply because the next two slides go into more detail and I want to give you time to absorb that. In all probability, they didn't, well, we know they didn't take the northern route. 
Secondly, they didn't take the route across the desert. So the, the, the most probable one was down uh, adjacent to the Red Sea. Now this, this is about, mm, uh, let's see. This looks actually larger than it is. This is about mm, 75 to 100 miles, okay? It's not thousands of miles. Not a lot of distance between Egypt and Canaan. So what Moses is going to do is he's going to take the Hebrew people to the backside of Canaan, to Kadesh Barnea, which we don't see on this map, into Canaan from the east, not from the west. So any comments or questions on what we've covered this evening? All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you this evening for your son. We thank you for the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea and what it means, what it meant to the Hebrew people, and obviously for your protection. And in just a, a few weeks, you would have them camp at, uh, uh, at Sinai, and you would proceed to give them the law and the covenant. We thank you for that. We still, Lord, Although the law doesn't save, it is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so we thank you and praise you for your provision. Abide and be with every family that is here tonight. Keep us safe as we depart this place and bring us back again on the Lord's day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.